As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A small mystery in Beijing has turned into a big one. A month ago, China's foreign ministry cleared the diary of the foreign minister, citing ill health. Now he's been sacked and replaced, and the party is clearing his whole history from the web. And literary critics these days just seem to be a little bit nicer. Gone are the savage reviews calling authors tiresome or idiots. Our correspondent looks into the coded language that's now in use and why reviews have become so civil. First up, though. Today, the Russia-Africa summit kicked off in St. Petersburg. Leaders from across the continent have been met with pomp and ceremony and a Vladimir Putin charm offensive. Mr. Putin heaped praise on his guests, highlighting, for example, long-standing friendly ties with Ethiopia, and the country's prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, responded in kind. We have a very um, long history. This visit, in my opinion, uh, will um, strengthen our relationship. But there's a tension here. Nine days ago, Mr. Putin pulled out of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, a deal signed a year ago today that kept staples flowing out of Ukraine and much of it into Africa. The agreement has allowed 30 million tons of food out of the breadbasket of Europe. Now that deal is in pieces, as are the silos and ports that Russia's forces have been attacking. That has African leaders rightly worried. Kenya's foreign secretary called the turnaround a stab in the back of global food security. But Russia's leader is trying hard to convince them that all is in hand. Vladimir Putin clearly cares about justifying abandoning the deal. Edward Carr is The Economist's deputy editor. Before this Africa-Russia summit, he published what he called an article on the Kremlin website in which he said that really the deal had only served to increase the profits of Western companies and that furthermore, the grain hadn't been supplied to developing countries and that the West had failed to keep its side of the bargain by removing sanction from Russian exports. The thing is, actually, when you look at these claims, they were basically all lies. And so what is the truth of it? First of all, the truth is, although Western companies don't want to carry Russian grain, there are no sanctions against Russian food exports or Russian fertilizer exports. And the other thing is, there's a global market for wheat. And if you look at world prices, they did reduce on the back of this export deal quite significantly, 23% below their peak in March 2022, in the run-up to the anniversary of the deal which was signed in July. 
And they've increased since Russia decided to abandon the deal, and particularly since it started striking Ukrainian port facilities and grain silos. So Putin's point's kind of disingenuous, irrelevant and misleading. I think what's really going on here is this is all about the psychological battle of who has the edge in the long war. And I see this action as a way of trying to ruin Ukraine's economy to try and persuade and convince the rest of the world that Ukraine can't win this. And so do you think that will work if the point here is to continue crimping Ukraine's economy? Well, there's no doubt that food exports are very important to Ukraine. Over 40% of exports before the war were of food. And it needs the three big Black Sea ports that are affected now by this new embargo to be able to ship grain out cheaply and in large quantities. It's true, there are some other routes uh, by rail and down the Danube River through Romania which avoid this, but they're much more expensive and only some of the grain can go that way, even though Ukraine's tried to increase the capacity of those routes. And I think one has to imagine what is Ukraine like if its economy is not functioning very well, it hasn't got access to the Black Sea, its farmers are under pressure, the whole country can't really thrive. And I think one definition of victory for Ukraine is to emerge as a thriving Western-orientated democracy. Well, that gets a lot harder if one of its main export industries is crippled. But the effects reach far beyond Ukraine, of course, because this is grain for the world. We've talked on the show before about just how much of it goes to Africa. It seems a strange thing that just before this Russia-Africa summit, he would hit at such a staple. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? And one reading of that, I think, is that this is a sign that Putin feels somewhat against the wall. This comes after the mutiny by Wagner mercenaries, which really shook Putin's authority. And it's been followed up by restiveness and unhappiness in the regular army. And I think one of the consequences of that was to raise questions about whether Putin's confidence that time was on his side was really justified. Signs that the long war might not suit Russia quite as much as Putin thought. So I see this as a kind of strike back after the Prigozhin-Wagner mutiny, as a sign that, you know, actually, you know what, I'm redoubling down, I'm prepared to push this. It's not the best timing for him coming just before this summit with African leaders, but he's trying to put the best gloss on it possible by promising them plentiful Russian wheat by saying, oh, they didn't really benefit from anyway, and so forth. But Mr. Putin's argument has been that the best way for stability, both for the country and for grain supplies, is to end the war. How is that message landing in Africa now? Well, I think there's some sympathy for that message in Africa. Some countries, ones that particularly are helped by Wagner, wholeheartedly support Russia's ambitions. But even those that really don't and don't have huge sympathy for what's going on feel that this fight is not their fight, that it's a distraction. But I think it's a disingenuous argument. Let's imagine that there is a ceasefire and it comes about because really actually Putin has managed to win this argument that he cares more about the long run than Ukraine's backers. What that really tells you is that the West doesn't have the resolve ultimately to defend Ukraine. And for Putin, that's a green light to 
build up Russia's arms, which could take, what, three, four, five years, and to have another go. I don't think it's the recipe for a lasting peace. So I think it's a siren song on Putin's part. And, and actually, the best way to restore calm in global commodity markets is to ensure that Russia loses this war. But in the short term, what about grain supplies? How much pressure might he face to get the grain deal going again if the, the plentiful Russian wheat that's promised doesn't come? I think that's a really interesting point, because if you accept my analysis, then actually African leaders now should be taking the advantage they have in St. Petersburg in the next couple of days to make the case to Putin that he needs to step back, he needs to rejoin the grain deal and allow it to work, because otherwise he is wrecking relations between Russia and the global south. And of course, it's not just African leaders. China also is an important importer of grain, and it has leverage too. And I could say the other big country involved here is Turkey. So I think there are plenty of countries that have leverage over Russia to start using their diplomatic weight in order to try and persuade Putin to rejoin. But what if Mr. Putin wants to stick with the plan as it stands now, if he thinks he has the advantage? then I think this diplomatic message from Africa, China, and especially Turkey, needs backing up with a threat. Don't forget that a blockade of international waters is illegal. So I think the West has every right to arm Ukraine with longer-range missiles that can put the Black Sea fleet under threat. I think it can urge Turkey to allow convoys to be escorted and protected. It could certainly ensure convoys. NATO could use air supply. There are basically a number of ways in which pressure can be brought to bear on Russia in order to try and get some resumption of this grain deal. Vladimir Putin's trying to show the world that he has lots of determination and lots of options ahead, that he's in a stronger position and that therefore the world should back off and cut its losses with Ukraine. But the more you look at this, the more it looks like a panicky move and that actually Vladimir Putin is running out of options. Edward, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much, Jason. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the 5th Annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Trying to cover elite Chinese politics is always an exercise in peering into a black box. But the last month in Beijing has been even more mysterious and full of rumours than usual. And that's because China's foreign minister, Qinggang, went missing after his last public meeting with Russian vice foreign minister on June the 25th. David Rennie is The Economist's Beijing bureau chief. All that we were told was that he was unwell. And even that transparency died away as the foreign ministry brushed aside all questions about where their boss was. Part of the answer 
was revealed a month later, when on July the 25th, there was a terse statement that China's rubber stamp parliament had approved a new foreign minister's appointment, and Qinggang had lost his job. And adding to the opacity, Qinggang's successor, Wang Yi, is also his predecessor and arguably his boss as a member of the Politburo and the Communist Party's top diplomat. So in so far as we can know, who is Qinggang? Tell us more about him. Qinggang is a genuinely interesting figure. You can have some very grey, colourless, cautious people at the top of the Chinese Communist Party. But Qinggang, the former foreign minister, was unusually willing to talk to foreigners and engage them, even dodgy foreign reporters like me. He was pretty candid. He could be charming when he wanted, but extremely menacing when he chose. Adding to the interest in Qinggang is that everybody knew that his meteoric rise, jumping several ranks in the last couple of years, was because he had caught the eye of China's supreme leader Xi Jinping when he was serving him as a protocol chief, organising his big state visits and foreign events. And he was very much Xi Jinping's idea of a model diplomat. He was sophisticated, fluent English-speaking, lots of experience abroad, but willing to show the West that in China's eyes, the West is decadent and weak and in decline. And as you've been peering into the, the black box in, in this time, what, what are the guesses? What happened to him? So at the very beginning of this mystery, a lot of people were willing to believe the official explanation that he had fallen suddenly ill. Basically, his diary was cleared from one day to the next, and then the foreign ministry began cancelling events kind of two, three, four weeks out. There was sympathy about that. People were worried that he might be genuinely ill. But the problem was that having said very tersely that he was not available to go to a big meeting in Southeast Asia because of health reasons, the foreign ministry clammed up completely, not just to impertinent foreign reporters, but also to ambassadors here in Beijing trying to set up important meetings with visiting foreign government leaders. And as the mystery continued, the embarrassment for China mounted, and that made it more and more likely that something had gone wrong, perhaps politically, for Qinggang, because the pain that China seemed willing to take in terms of the gossip and the rumours, including, you know, ever wilder rumours about his private life or stuff, frankly, sort of plucked from spy thrillers that you would read at an airport bookstore. These rumours have been going around every single embassy reception or elite Chinese gathering for the last few weeks. And the fact that they weren't willing to silence them by coming out and telling us that he either was very ill or that he had stepped down just fueled the sense that something so bad had happened that they would rather this embarrassing silence then come clean. So even with all the connections you've got, you're none the wiser either. You don't know, we won't know the answer to this story. I mean, a really remarkable thing is we do know that he's no longer foreign minister and we know that the foreign ministry website has been scrubbed clean of pretty much any mention of Chin Gang now, who, if you go back into previous activities, visits and speeches, he's just disappeared. He's an unperson, which is not a great sign in this system. But plenty of details remain very odd. We don't know whether he has lost some of his other senior titles. He had a senior Communist Party title as a member of the Central Committee that he only just picked up. We don't know if he's lost that or whether potentially he could suddenly be under investigation and any inquiries and just referring foreign media, for example, to this extremely terse official statement that he's been replaced by Wang Yi. And even that replacement by Wang Yi, as we mentioned, doesn't really answer everyone's questions because 
He's been replaced by his own boss, who already has another even more powerful job as the top Communist Party diplomat. Wang Yi is also 69, which is very close to the retirement age that's imposed on communist leaders. And so he doesn't seem plausibly a long-term solution to this problem. Still, there are a couple of fixed points in this very murky saga. One is that for all the Tesla showrooms and Apple stores and Starbucks cafes, this is still a Marxist-Leninist capital city. And it runs on rules that frankly would be recognizable to Communist Party apparatchiks from the 1950s. The other is that people matter in this system because of their connections. The job of foreign minister is actually not that senior in the Communist Party machine. Xin Gang's mystery has been completely transfixing elite Beijing because he is seen as hand-picked and favoured by the supreme leader, Xi Jinping, the man we spent all of our time thinking about trying to second-guess. And so the fact that he's fallen, but we don't know how far, just feeds into the mystery of mysteries, the meta-mystery of working in Beijing, which is what is going on with Xi Jinping, what is in the mind of China's supreme leader. David, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. You can hear more about the Gang saga and the other goings-on in China on our sister show, Drum Tower. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Find Drum Tower, well, wherever you found this podcast. It is delicious to know that one reviewer called John Keats's poetry Driveling idiocy. Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. It's even more pleasing to know that Virginia Woolf considered James Joyce's writing to be such tosh. And surely no one could be uncheered to hear that when the critic Dorothy Parker read Winnie the Pooh, she found it so full of innocent, childish whimsy that she, in her own moment of whimsical spelling, flowed up. Because for the reader, life offers few purer pleasures than a very good, very bad review. For the writer, of course, life offers few purer pains. This is the worst thing that can happen to you. A.A. Milne never wrote another whimsy the poo again, and the mere word whimsical became loathsome to him. John Keats went one better, and after the driveling idiocy comment, obligingly, or so Lord Byron said, dropped dead, snuffed out, Byron wrote, by an article. But hatchet jobs like those are becoming less common, Read literary magazines today and you're not going to get wonderful lines like those. Be kind, is what Twitter says, and on the whole, modern reviewers are starting to be. Open the books pages and you're much more likely to see writers calling each other things like lyrical, brilliant, insightful, rather than, as they once did, tiresome, annoying, absurd, and an idiot. This has gone so far that there was a literary editor of BuzzFeed a few years back even announced that his book section would not do negative book reviews at all. This was wonderful news for writers and, of course, for their mums everywhere. It is much less good news for readers. Today, the literary world might no longer need to mourn its spurned poets, but it does need to mourn the death of the hatchet job. Some papers and magazines keep up the tradition of the seriously sharp review, But all too often, book reviews feel like an insufferably smug inside job. This is, I think, particularly true of literary newspapers. 
they live in such a rarefied atmosphere. They tend to be rich in reviewers called things like Ferdinand, words like jejun, and in headlines that read honestly more like a promise than a threat. Things like wither Somalia or structuralism domesticated or who's afraid of close reading. Whereas hatchet jobs in general are usually up for a much less elevated style. There was one infamous review by the critic Philip Henscher where he said that one writer was so bad that he couldn't write bum on a wall. You don't need to domesticate structuralism to know what that one means. But modern reviews today rarely achieve that lethal beauty. Far too often when you pick up book reviews, they're filled with these kind of filler words that feel less like they've been individually chosen for the moment than they've been kind of piped into the review like grouting just to glue the whole lot together. You'll know them if you read book reviews. Words like darkly funny and searing and a profound meditation. And many of these are euphemisms for the word boring, which is effectively forbidden on literary pages, partly because if you started with it, you'd never finish. So there is... Detailed. Boring. Exhaustive. Really boring. Magisterial. Boring, but by a professor, and I didn't finish it, so I can't criticise it. This isn't just modern sappiness either. It's always been agonising for writers. The novelist Anthony Pohl famously saw the world as being divided into either fans or shits. Even in Roman times, these things could sting. One of the most famous poems by the Roman poet Catullus is a riposte critics who accused him of being effeminate. Catullus wrote, Pedicabo egos et irumable. A line that's so rude, it was only translated into ancient Greek, which was considered an appropriate language for describing such things in. And there is no verb to translate it within English. But suffice to say, it's to do with mouths and doing things to them that aren't that nice. fashions always change so it could just be that the world has changed and we're in a period where people are just nicer or perhaps more false but actually probably it's also to do with the internet it's an obvious reason for this softening so it's changed the economics of criticism shrunken newspapers have much fewer pages to give to book reviews and so the editors tend to reason that people want to read about books that they should read and not books that they shouldn't so there's less space available in papers for the bad review And then there's also the thing that the internet gives a longevity to insults. And something that might have been funny, blurted out and hanging around for a week, is much less amusing if it hangs around online for eternity. And there are writers whose careers have been permanently tainted by bad reviews that they have given to other people because they were so rude, no one can forget them. Then there's the thing that people are, as one author DJ Taylor said to me, that people are just terrified of giving offence. So... All in all, the blades are just glinting a bit less. But they should still glint occasionally, because what gets forgotten in all of this is that the real market for these reviews is not, and never has been, the critic or the author. It's the reader. And they still want to know if a book is worth reading. So the critic has a duty to tell the truth. And besides, if the writer doesn't like it, I mean, they are writers after all. They can, as Catullus did, respond. But they might want to go light on the pedicarbo voice bits if they want to get published on BuzzFeed.
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you're not a subscriber to The Economist, here's a great way to give it a try. We've got a free 30-day digital subscription offer. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Data is the lifeblood of business and society. Want to get better with it? Register now for Economist Education's new two-week course, Data Storytelling and Visualization, starting on July 31st. Designed by The Economist journalists, you'll learn how to create compelling infographics, reveal hidden insights, and to persuade others. And as an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 15% off with the code DATA. So sign up now at economist.com slash datacourse. You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.